Father, thank you for how you've been meeting us in this rich, rich section that unpacks so much vital truth for Christmas, vital truth about your Son and the precious gifts he brings to us. And so we pray again, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to see, to understand, to take in, to marvel, to be amazed at the glories of God in Christ and to leave here believing and rejoicing. We ask you for your help to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thank you, Thomas. In the movie, Saving Private Ryan, we follow army rangers landing on Omaha Beach, D-Day, World War II. Then, after that, after D-Day, they receive a mission. This squad receives a mission to go and find one Private Ryan because his brothers have already been killed in battle. I believe it's actually based on a factual situation. So this squad of, of rangers, army rangers, they now search for this Private Ryan, and it's an arduous search. They encounter battle after battle, skirmish after skirmish. A number of the members of the a squad are, are killed. Finally, finally they find Private Ryan, and they say, Come with us. You're leaving the battle. We're getting you out of here. And he says, no, thank you. I can't leave right now. There's a battle coming. I can't leave. And so the army rangers end up staying and fighting, and most of them from that squad die. Private Ryan lives. At the end of the scene, though, the main character, made, played by Tom Hanks, he's been shot. And he's dying. And with his dying last words, he whispers in the ear of Private Ryan, Earn this. Earn it. And it's a poignant scene. You see at the end how those words have almost haunted this man. Earn this. Earn it. But it's not just Private Ryan who hears those words. I would submit to you, when it comes to God's favor and God's blessings, every human heart, every human heart in some fashion hears, earn this. You, you want to earn this. You need to earn this. Somehow, I'm sure, you can earn this. Are you aware of that voice? Are you aware of that whispering in your ear? And so we live trying to earn this, trying to earn God's favor, maybe thinking we have earned it, 
or oftentimes thinking we have forfeited something of God's favor, forfeited something of God's blessing, forfeited something of God's love, that now God is, is tolerating us, but keeping us at arm's length. Well, Christmas brings us good news instead. Good news, good news to people who think they can earn this when it comes to God's favor. Good news to people who think they have forfeited something of God's favor or God's love. Good news to people who might think that though they have trusted this Savior, that God is keeping them at a distance and merely tolerating them. Friends, to every heart that wants to, quote, earn this, Christmas brings to you the good news of God's grace. That's really my main point this morning. Christmas brings to us the gift of God's grace, the gift of the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And what I want to draw out with you now would be three facets, you might say. They're overlapping and interlocking, but three facets, three facets of that gift of grace that Christmas brings to us. Here's the first. First thing to draw out, Christmas brings a, a steadfastly faithful grace. I know that's a mouthful. A steadfastly faithful grace. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've already talked about that. And we've seen His glory Glory as of the only Son, the one-of-a-kind Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Christmas, we've seen for now four weeks, is in that verse. The eternal Word from verse 1, always with God, always was God. The divine Son of God took on a human nature in addition to His divine nature. And John says, we have seen His glory. And as I was asked last week, very appropriately, what kind of glory? What is that? What has John seen in terms of his glory? Well, actually, he tells us here in part that I intentionally skipped last week. It's glory full of grace and truth, conveniently underlined. <laughs> glory full of Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth is modifying the glory. Now, what is this grace and truth? Well, certainly truth is a major theme in John's gospel. In John 4, we must worship in spirit and in truth. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 18, Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? as he's going to condemn Jesus soon after. Truth is a major theme, but grace, grace is the emphasis in these verses. All four uses of this word in John's gospel appear in these verses. Grace is the particular emphasis here, and grace means, grace means being a recipient of divine kindness, unearned divine favor. And I'm calling it steadfastly faithful grace because John is echoing an important scene in the Bible. We talked about this a little bit last week. 
When John says, we've seen his glory in verse 14, it's an echo of what Moses said in Exodus chapter 33 when he said, God, please show me your glory. Recall that? Moses said, look, things are going well between us. I want to know you better. <laughs> please show me your glory. I just, think, I just feel like, you know, in his heart, he said, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to ask. Show me your glory, God. I really want to see it. And God says in response, I will make all my goodness, all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim my name before you. But Moses, you can't handle my unshielded glory. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. You'll see kind of my afterglow of glory pass by as I proclaim my name to you. And in the next chapter, Exodus 34, it happens. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed. So here's the answer to Moses' request. Show me your glory. The Lord passes before him and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, this this covenant name for God, the name by which He revealed Himself, the name by which He entered into this committed, loving relationship with His people, the Lord, the Lord, a God, notice, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, scholars are practically, I think, unanimous as they see those two words, translated steadfast love and faithfulness, those two words are being echoed by John when he says, full of grace and truth. This word translated steadfast love, it has the idea of a gracious love, a gracious love. This word translated faithfulness, the idea of truthfulness or faithfulness to God's promises. These words occur together a number of times. They describe how God related to his people as this God of steadfast or gracious love and faithfulness to his promises, faithfulness to this covenant and the pinnacle of that love and that grace and that truth and that faithfulness, the pinnacle of that is sending His Son, what we celebrate at Christmas. So so catch the connection, catch the parallel. The glory seen in Jesus, John says, full of grace and truth, is in a sense the the glory Moses longed to see and heard proclaimed steadfast love and faithfulness, gracious love and faithfulness come to us in Jesus Christ. I was on a date with my dear wife, Sung, this week, and I teasingly asked her, is Santa going to bring you anything this year? And I said, have you been good enough? Because that is the Santa, you know, thing, right? You know the song. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. That's the earn this, saving private Ryan approach to Christmas. 
You've been naughty or nice. Well, which is going to tip the scales for you this year? More naughty than nice? You get a lump of coal. More nice than naughty? Santa might bring you something. And as I trust you're aware, the Santa Claus gospel is not the Christian, not the Christmas gospel. Not the Christmas good news. Christmas brings you this this committed grace, this promise-fulfilling grace, this steadfastly gracious love based on God's truthfulness and and faithfulness to you that, that never, ever, ever lets you go. It's that kind of love, that kind of grace and truth. And, and as I was preparing this, I, I thought especially about the parents here. I thought especially about parents. Because parents, we can tend to have and earn this mentality when it comes to parenting. Most live asking the question, have I been faithful enough in my parenting? And that's a good question to ask in many ways, not a wrong question at all, but it becomes for me, becomes for many, have I been faithful enough that things will go well with my kids? Have I been faithful enough to earn God's blessing, to deserve God's favor on my kids? It really becomes, if I'm faithful enough, they will be converted. If I'm faithful enough, they will follow Jesus passionately. If I'm faithful enough, my teenagers will obey me always, right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. If I'm faithful enough, that will inevitably and always happen. It's this this equation that you fill out. And there's a lot of earn this in that mentality. And God does use parents as an important means of grace. So you do matter. Your evangelism and discipleship in your home matter. Don't hear me say otherwise. But parents, please listen to me. Your hope for your children, your hope for your teenagers, your hope for your adult children who might be breaking your heart right now is not located in your degree of faithfulness. It's located in His faithfulness. That's your hope. You matter. But your ultimate hope cannot be in you. It must be in Him, His steadfastly faithful, unwavering grace. That's where you locate your hope, the hope and grace that Christmas brings to you. That that kind of grace, it deflates the parental pressure of, I have to do it right, I have to do it all right, it's all riding on me. And it deflates the parental pride of saying, I've done it all right. Look at what I've accomplished here in these kids. And instead, friends, instead, with the grace that Christmas brings, you pursue faithfulness as God enables you. You pray with all your heart, 
while locating all your hope, not in your faithfulness, but in his. Apply Christmas to parenting this year. We'll encourage you, sustain you, and keep you going. God's steadfastly faithful grace. Hope in it even now. Christmas brings us that gift of grace. Secondly, Christmas brings us a law-replacing grace. Another mouthful. Christmas brings us a, a law-replacing grace. So picking up now on this fullness of grace in verse 14, that Jesus is full of grace and truth in verse 14, John says in verse 16, from His fullness, from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This, this overflowing fountain called Jesus, we've received from Him grace upon grace. And it sounds like sort of wave upon wave of grace crashing onto the beach. And certainly for the Christian, that's undoubtedly true in our experience, but I don't think what John intends here. This is really grace in place of grace. Grace in place of grace. Verse 16 is saying, one kind of grace has replaced another kind of grace. As verse 17 explains, for, verse 17, for, let me explain, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now those two verses are tightly linked, so keep them together. Catch what he's saying. Catch what God is saying. He's saying, my law through Moses was an expression of my grace. It was a gift to my people. It's grace in place of grace. You might not think grace when you hear law, but that's the reality being described. God entered into this covenant relationship, but it was ultimately a covenant of His grace that had the, the, the distinguishing feature of law. That's the way to think about it. A relationship with His people, ultimately based on His grace, with the distinguishing feature of lots of law. <laughs> that was what came through Moses. Now, he says, now with the coming of Jesus, that earlier grace, that earlier grace has been replaced by another grace. Remember, it's grace in place of grace. That earlier grace through Moses has been replaced by another grace through Jesus. Another grace that, that fulfills, that, that brings to completion that earlier grace. It's kind of like this. Suppose I say to my 12-year-old son, who's in the middle school class, son, I am going to, as long as you're home, I'm going to take care of your transportation needs. My purpose in your life is to provide transportation for you. And so for Christmas, I give him a brand new bike, a shiny mountain bike, maybe. It's got multiple gears and knobby tires. It can go anywhere. It's a great bike. And he loves this bike. It accomplishes my purpose of transportation and gets him all around town. But when he turns 16... I take him out to the driveway, and I say to him, my purpose of transportation has not changed at all. And so now I am giving you my used Honda Accord. <laughs> this car is going to provide transportation for you like that bike never could. 
My son, I hope, will say, Dad, the bike served its purpose well. It provided transportation, but I didn't realize that all along that bike was pointing forward to even greater transportation. <laughs> and that's what's being described here. Not a perfect analogy, but I think you get the point. Grace through Jesus fulfills, brings to completion earlier grace that came through Moses. Now, I think, I think there are two ways that you can misapply that. <laughs> I don't usually say that, do I? Two ways you can misapply that. One is to hear what I just said and replace law with more law in your life. And live as if God has you on probation all the time. And so his favor, his love are based on your performance, your law, your current level of obedience. I read about Leo Tolstoy recently, the Russian writer, considered one of the greatest authors of all time, wrote novels like War and Peace, which I've not read. I was reading about Tolstoy, how he made a Christian profession of faith, but was a legalist. Tolstoy made his Christianity really all about Christ's law, and the law became more important to him than the lawgiver, Jesus. So it was said of Tolstoy, quote, he had no enthusiasm, no feeling in his words, no spark of real fire. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I read that and I thought, those are common signs of a legalist. Those are common signs. A withered heart. No enduring enthusiasm for Jesus. No, no spark anymore of spiritual fire. It's all become duty. It's all become earnness. Can you relate? See, our souls need grace from God like our bodies need oxygen. Without that, your love for the Savior begins to wither on the vine. Your passion for Jesus and the things of Jesus Christ begins to dry up, and you may go dutifully about the Christian life, but without evident joy. And Christmas wants to renew your joy. God wants to renew your joy by realizing this is a, a law-replacing grace. The grace that has come has brought that earlier grace to fulfillment for you who believe. But I think there's another way we can misapply this. And that's by thinking, well, this new grace then brings no claim at all on my life, morally speaking. No claim at all. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously called cheap grace. Grace that we think brings no claim at all whatsoever on the believer. And that, too, is a distortion when we think God's moral standards are now irrelevant for me. Hallelujah. No moral standards in my life. They don't matter anymore. It's Christian moral relativism based on cheap grace. And instead, I think it's helpful to think about what theologians have called three uses, 
three uses of the law for the Christian, restraint and conviction and guidance. Restraint in society, we would desire. Conviction, showing your sin, leading to Jesus. And guidance, helping you see how to live for the glory of God by His grace. You know, it's said that you don't know, you don't know what a crooked line is until you know what a straight line is. It's kind of like that for us, isn't it? We don't know where we're crooked until we benefit from the straight line of God's Word and His holiness revealed in His law. So don't just chuck the law either as if it's entirely irrelevant to you and have no bearing on you. Let it point you to Jesus. Let it shape you in ways to live for the glory of God. And then, friends, then you are living in the good of this law replacing grace. Then you're living in the good of this. Then you're living in the good of this grace that frees you from law replacing law. And you're living in the good of this grace that does not say to you, live however you want, it doesn't matter. You get to live for God's glory because you're free to do so by His grace. That's the second way Christmas brings to us the gift of God's grace. There's a kind of steadfastly faithful grace here. There's kind of a, a law-replacing grace here. But let's not assume the obvious. Thirdly, we should say here that Christmas brings a personally embodied grace. A personally embodied grace. I just mean it comes to us in and through a person and his finished work. And that's the assumption throughout, isn't it? That's verse 14. And the Word, the eternal Word from verse 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Bethlehem. That's Christmas. That's the baby in the manger. It's also the point of verse 15. Verse 15 where we see the following. John bore witness. John the Baptist bore witness about him, Jesus, and cried out, quote, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me this pre-existent one from verse 1. You might say, why is John the Baptist inserted here in this kind of parenthetical remark? It seems to break up the flow. Well, John's testimony grounds all of this in a person who lived in real space and time, who really walked the earth. And that's vital. As D.A. Carson has put it, if you could destroy, if you could destroy the historic truth the historic fact of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you would destroy the Christian faith. Are you aware of that? The Christian faith is based on historical fact about this person. That's why verse 15 matters. Same thing in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, as one commentator contrasted this, he said, the law was given through Moses, this mediator, but grace came to us. Grace came to us face to face. Grace came to us with ten fingers and ten toes. Grace came to us in a person, as it had to be. 
Because the gift of God's grace doesn't come to us by an idea. This grace doesn't come to us through the idea of self-sacrifice or the noble idea of great love. Grace comes to us through a person's birth, life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus is not just the gift giver. He's the gift. He's the gift himself. He's the, he's the hero of the story. But not like a superhero today that rescues with their superpowers in some ways, which I think is fun. This is the divine, almighty, coming in weakness to rescue us. Born in a small, unimpressive town called Bethlehem. Growing up in a backwater place no one really wanted to be from, called Nazareth, this town with a reputation. Launched his ministry, his own family didn't believe in him. They thought at one point in Mark's gospel, they think he's out of his mind. They go to take charge of him, they think he's crazy. He was wrongly arrested, condemned in a sham trial, and executed like a slave, hanging naked on a cross, a shameful cross. That's, friend, that's where our experience of this grace comes from, embodied in this person, Jesus Christ, his birth, life, death and resurrection. Did anyone see the Merriam-Webster Word of the Year for 2018? Anyone see the Merriam-Webster Word of the Year? It's justice. Perhaps one of the most searched for words they said on their website this year, justice. And, and that's good. But there are a lot of injustices in the world. And we should pray for and long for and work toward justice in society wherever we can. I hope you'd agree with me. But, but justice is also a problem for us. You see, grace here, grace is not just God letting bygones be bygones. Grace is not God being kind of a senile grandfather. I don't really know what's going on anyway. Never pay attention. Those foolish kids. No. No, we're dealing with the infinitely holy one. The infinitely holy one. Infinitely other. Infinitely set apart in greatness and transcendence like we can't imagine. Who, who dwells in, in unapproachable light, the Bible says. So justice, friends, is a, a problem for us. Left to ourselves, justice means judgment, wrath, and an eternal hell. I mean, it, really, if you embrace the earn this mentality, that's what you earn. You earn judgment, you earn wrath, 
you earn an eternal hell. I'm sorry to ruin your Christmas, but that's justice. That would be justice against me. That would be justice against you. If you've yet to submit to Jesus Christ and trust in Jesus Christ, you, you do need to understand this. Christmas really won't make sense to you otherwise. The smallest of sins is an affront to God's infinite holiness and infinite justice and so earns an eternal hell. But that justice has been received by Jesus Christ who hung on that cross in shame and weakness for all who believed. He lived, died, and rose to to earn what you could not earn, that you could receive what you did not earn. That you could receive the undeserved favor of God, His grace. So, So turn to a person this Christmas. Turn to this person born in a manger who is ruling over the nations. Submit your life to Him. Rely on His life, death, and resurrection to take away the justice you've earned that you might receive what you could never earn, God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness of your sins and the gift of His love and a relationship that will last forever. I urge you to turn to Christ. But maybe you're a Christian here and you are trusting in His sacrifice and this idea, this idea of justice, it still haunts you. And I was thinking of you as well. There are probably here people for whom your guilt haunts you. Something from your past haunts you. You carry with you this, this backpack of regret and shame for what you've done. You feel, you feel chained to that past, chained to that guilt, chained to your shame, certain that God cannot love you fully, not like He does other people. Uh, He accepts you maybe to a degree and keeps you at arm's length. He's tolerating you, but He doesn't really, really love you and embrace you and accept you like His child. A, A blogger that I read captured the experience like this. At 8.40 a.m., On the day she was to be married, Miss Havisham received a letter from her fiancé that hijacked the rest of her life. He, the fiancé, was standing her up at the altar. And in that moment, she chained herself to the past. Every day, for decades, her soiled and tattered wedding dress was her sole attire. She had every clock in the house frozen at 8.40 a.m. The wedding cake, once resplendent, lay forever uncut and uneaten, gathering cobwebs on the kitchen table. Miss Havisham, he writes, is a character in Charles Dickens' novel, 
great expectations. But then he says, she may be fictional, but let's not fool ourselves into thinking that she's not real. She's more real than we care to admit. He notes, we all have moments in our past that we never really seem to get past. And 8.40 a.m. in our own lives, when the hands of the clock stopped, and try as we might, he said, we cannot get the hands of the clock moving again. Chained to the past. Some of you experience that. Some of you relate to that right now. You have an 840 moment in your life. And you carry it with you every day. You have an 840 a.m. thing you did. You can't undo it. It's with you always. You have an 840 a.m. season of your life. The hands of the clock are stopped. And though you are a Christian, you are convinced you are chained forever to that shame and that guilt. I ask you, what's the answer to that? The answer is not to minimize sin. The answer is to maximize this grace. The answer, friends, is realizing that justice, justice against you has been satisfied in full. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. So you now hear that over the entirety of your life, including that 840 moment or that 840 season of your life, that it too is finished on Jesus Christ, that no demand of God's justice remains against you, that your shame has been entirely taken away, and Christmas comes to you now saying, believe, believe, believe that good news. Be freed from that chain. Believe it by beholding this person. Believe it by beholding this personally embodied grace. Believe it by beholding Jesus and His finished work for you again and again and again. You say, how, Tab? How do I do that? Well, let me help you with how. A number of us are familiar with a quotation from a guy named Robert Murray McShane. He said rather famously, for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. I think it's good advice, but it becomes a cliche because some of us have heard it a lot. Well, I recently read the context, the larger context of that quote, and I think the whole thing is going to help you right now. Abigail, you put that up. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Why? He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And for sinners, even the chief. So, live much in the smiles of God. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. 
feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose, rest, rest in his almighty arms. That's how you sever those chains. That's how you live every day amazed by the grace that comes to us through Christmas. You keep looking at Jesus, infinite majesty, infinite holiness, yet such meekness and grace. And God, you realize, is not saying to you, earn this. He's saying to you, believe this. Believe this good news and live much in my smiles. Would you take that home with you today? That because of this grace, come to you at Christmas, you would live much in the smiles of God. Because Christmas brings to us the gift, this glorious gift of God's grace. Let's pray and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. The music team can come. I want to ask you just to take a moment to respond in your own heart. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're realizing, you know, Tab, I'm not really sure I've believed this good news. Well, friend, now's a great chance to realize that justice, infinite holy justice is real. But God in his love, God in his mercy, God in his grace has provided, as it were, a way of escape, a rescue, an amazing rescue to bring you to himself. And he calls you right now, he commands you to turn from going your own way and to trust in this person, Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, to absorb your justice and give you what you don't deserve and cannot earn, his grace. I urge you right now to come to him believing. But may well, I thank you. That you are indeed altogether lovely. A savior of infinite majesty yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners like us, even the chief, would you help us now to live much in your smiles? Would you let every person here who believes on your Son to feel your all-seeing eye settled on them in love and they would rest in your almighty arms. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.